Right, okay. <clears throat> Good, and uh, hello, and I'm Christopher Hicken, for anyone doesn't know me. I'm one of the readers, that's one of the preachers here at Christchurch Burley. Lord Jesus, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be pleasing to you. Amen. As hinted, uh, I'm a preacher, but I'm not actually going to preach about Numbers 10. Uh, what I decided to do tonight uh, might be a good opportunity for me to give my testimony. So I've spent some time working through this. And actually, um, what we've just heard, there's no one like you, um, makes a good theme for this testimony. You may know the approved format for a Christian testimony. You say what life was like before you became a Christian, explain how you became a Christian, and what difference your new faith has made to your life. Well, my testimony will be nothing like that. Uh, for one thing, I cannot identify a time in my life when I was not a Christian. I've had a good argument about this with a friend in this very church who challenged me to identify the point in my life at which I committed myself to Christ, which is a fair comment. I replied that I have indeed done that more than once, but it was always a recommitment. And I was reading old diaries to prepare for this talk, and to my amusement, I found an entry. When I attended the Keswick Convention in 1966, um, the diary entry says, I give myself to Christ. And in the same handwriting, so it's obviously contemporary, I've written over the top, rededicate. In a recent sermon, I recalled how again in the 1960s, I went forward at a Billy Graham crusade. And the man who counseled me after asking a couple of questions said, you're a Christian, mate. What you need is assurance of salvation. And he showed me the Bible verses such as John 6 verse 37. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast away. And from that day, I have been sure that I am a Christian. Even when I don't feel a very good Christian, I am a Christian and my destination is heaven. I cannot overstate the blessings of having grown up in a loving Christian family. I have come to value more and more the accurate moral compass I was given. The more so, as I have seen the devastation caused by the lack of such a thing. Of course, it's possible to be both loving and moral without being a Christian. But above and beyond this, I have never known a time when I did not know the hope of eternal life. At the church where my father was, a vicar in my school days, there was an organist who put such joy into our Easter services. The whole church was thrilled with hope and the fact that he was Welsh may have helped, but what really counted was the joy in his faith in Christ's resurrection. So I had all this as I grew up, a loving family, joy in the faith, but there appeared as I grew on the horizon a threat much is required of him to whom much is given. 
Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. In those days, it was customary to be confirmed about the age of 13. I knew this was a serious commitment, so I deliberately delayed it until I felt ready, which was about the age of 16. And then it was as if the Lord God decided that it was time I learned to stand on my own feet. I read two books in the wrong order. First, C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, followed by Bertrand Russell, Why I Am Not a Christian. <laughs> I was left with serious doubts. Bertrand Russell was a formidable intellect to make today's so-called new atheists pale into insignificance. He had studied at depth the philosophical issues that the new atheists trade second-hand. If you're interested in these issues, we can recommend a number of excellent works of Christian apologetics, such as the recently published Justine Briley, Unbelievable, Why After Ten Years of Talking to Atheists, I Am Still a Christian and uh, Peter S. Williams, C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheist. Bertrand Russell's approach to philosophy went under the name of logical positivism. So when I recently found Peter Williams' book, I was stunned by the phrase, since the mid 20th century death of logical positivism, etc." And I was left thinking, why did no one tell me? Um, but I have covered this briefly in a recent sermon. Uh, to put it very simply, the materialist creed, nothing is true that cannot be scientifically verified, collapses because that statement itself cannot be scientifically verified. I think this was first noticed by one Alvin Plantinger as long ago as 1967, but we urgently need to get the word out onto the street because there are people who still seem to think that science has disproved God. In the 1960s, all this was obscure to me. I'm not a, an original or very incisive thinker. So I was wondering about giving up my faith. But first of all, I hung on because I didn't want to upset my parents. However, that wasn't quite good enough for the Lord. And at the next crisis of faith, the decision I came to was that though I couldn't be sure about Jesus, it's remained true that Jesus represents everything I know that's best. So I decided to follow him anyway and see what happened. So now the Lord God has something he can work with. I came up against a variety of Christians for whom God was very real, hence the visit to the Keswick Convention in 1966. And the chaplain at my Cambridge College, Maudlin, was the remarkable Simon Barrington Ward, who had known C.S. Lewis and went on to lead the Church Mission Society before becoming Bishop of Coventry. He was keen to introduce us to a renewal movement through which the Holy Spirit was beginning to make his presence felt within the Church of England. And Simon Barrington Ward invited the American pastor, Jean Darnell, to speak to us. And in her talk, she was saying things like, 
It's like you're one of these big old steam engines waiting in a siding for the lights to clear so you can move out onto the main line. I don't know why I'm talking so much about locomotives tonight. And those of you who know me know I'm a railway enthusiast, and so that message seemed to be all for me. I reached the point where my intellectual doubts were no longer a problem, but a luxury. I knew that God was real enough, and that posed a new problem. What was I to do about it? My diaries show that at this time I was engaged in all sorts of cheerful activities, but I remember finding that my delight in all this fun was beginning to dry up. It was as if the Lord was gradually shutting down all the distractions in my life. I cannot pinpoint when it happened, but I remember the challenge to surrender to God's sovereignty. Another recommitment, but going deeper, because this meant giving up control of my life. I didn't want to do this, but once I did, it was as if all the lights started to come on again. I remember singing Charles Wesley's wonderful words, I woke the dungeon flamed with light, and thinking, that's happened to me. I had always hoped to offer myself for ordination, and now I felt ready to do so, and was accepted for training. I switched my studies from classics to theology and completed my degree, but I still felt very green. I didn't feel I had the moral authority to give anyone in difficulties sound advice. With the agreement of my theological college, I spent a year living and working at the Mayflower Family Centre, Boys Clubs, in Canning Town, East London. But then I was challenged by an eccentric Christian friend to help him run a small hostel for drug addicts and discharged prisoners. And this is where my testimony sort of goes off the rails again. My friend was full of enthusiasm, but somewhat excitable. I couldn't deny that he sometimes spoke with authority from the Lord, but I could see that working with him would be difficult. And that once I committed myself to assist him, it would be very difficult to extricate myself. He challenged me to make a decision. I said I believed I should return to my parents and proceed with ordination training, the sensible thing to do. He insisted that the Lord wanted me to join him. I said I would not do so unless there was something in my Bible reading for that day to convince me that I should. I felt fairly secure about this because I'd already read the passage. And maybe you can guess what that passage was. It was the one we've just heard from Numbers chapter 10. Moses here is recruiting his father-in-law to act as a guide for them in the desert. Um, but what was striking for me was the actual words in the conversation. Come with us and we will treat you well. He answered, no, I will not go. I'm going back to my own land and my own people. But Moses said, please do not leave us. If you come with us, we will share with you whatever good things the Lord gives us. Now, this seemed to me too close an echo of the conversation I just had. 
And so I gave up and joined my friend in his work. And a crazy adventure and very difficult at times, it turned out to be. On one occasion, we were raided by the police. I have actually experienced the Gestapo 3 a.m. thump on the door. It is totally disorientating. Heavy with sleep, I could not imagine what it could be that was trying to break down our door. So I approached the door like a lion tamer, holding a chair out in front of me. But this wasn't the Gestapo, it was the Brixton police acting on the information received. And they didn't think much of the information, so they turned it into a training exercise for their new recruits. Then they found that our stout Edwardian front door simply would not yield to all their efforts. They, in the end, they had to ask me to open it. And in came a troop of fresh-faced recruits to gawp at the drug addicts. Bricks and then as now was a marvelously varied community. Um, several contingents of refugees, the established a population of Jamaicans as well as the original Londoners. And then at the posh end of Railton Road, there was Dulwich. And in addition to all these groups of people, there were the keen young radicals who moved to the area of all sorts of persuasions. And so it was that even at 3 a.m., we were able to call on a young Christian trained barrister who was a supporter of ours. And he turned out, God bless him, and once he did so, it all became quite civilized. The police departed with a couple of the lads and some scraps of information, and uh, our barrister persu persuaded them to pay for the damage to our front door. Just a, a rather dramatic highlight to give a flavor of life in the hospital. Our approach was pretty basic. We offer you a bed and regular meals. You go out and find a job. In those days, you could say that. Um, there was always a job to be found somewhere. And gradually, we became more organized, working with the probation service and other professionals. Eventually, political change removed our main source of grant support, and we had to close. I went to the Brixton Labour Exchange and said, it's not the lads this time, it's me. Can you find me a job? The lady phoned up Brixton's Social Security office and I overheard her saying, no, honestly, would I send you rubbish? And that in 1976 was the start of my civil service career. I'm coming to the end of my testimony, part one. I need to conclude by saying that at this stage, I still thought of myself as an ordinary and I did attend two further selection conferences, but it became clear that ordination was not for me. Particularly at the last conference, I remember being overcome by the feeling, what am I doing here? This is none of my business. And afterwards, my vicar, who was a good friend, commented, you've been delivered from a bogus vocation. So this testimony is, has been about a young man coming to terms with the claims of God on his life. The gospel underlies everything. As St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, sins forgiven and a whole new creation. 
God, Christ died to set right what we got wrong. And it's a new start, a new life starting now and going right through into eternity. Now, I have had to come to terms with what that meant for me personally. And in doing so, I seem to have received my salvation on the installment plan and the set of decisions drawing me ever deeper into his purposes for me. I knew that my decision to join the hostile work would be fatal for my career as I then understood it. But what should I say that I gained? Well, for one thing, I can actually say that I really did give up everything to follow Jesus because that was the effect of that decision at that time. But you can't outgive God. In return, he gave me my life as he knew it should be, delivered from a bogus vacation. I came to understand that his plans for my life are so much more creative than my own. Life in Brixton was difficult, but it was also invigorating and full of character. From the hostel, I returned to regular church life with a sense of battle hardness, my faith stronger and deeper, and with a clearer sense of who I am in Christ. It was only recently that I realized the full significance in the parable of the prodigal son, of the father's words to his eldest son, the one who never left him. Son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. Everything. Yes, it really feels like that. He has given me so much. And I barely mentioned the Holy Spirit. It was a few years ago that my oldest daughter, Ellen, came back from Soul Survivor and said, Daddy, I would love to see you come under the power of the Holy Spirit. What, said I? Have I never told you? That has already happened. But that is a tale for another time. Well, follow that, eh? Thank you, Chris. What a wonderful story. Uh, and some really challenging and encouraging words as well. That sometimes we just need to give up on the plans that we think we have, because I think the phrase he used was that God's plans are much more creative. Um, so we'll just have a time just to our time to respond, really, to what Chris has shared. <clears throat> I'd like to go back to um, one of the three words that Richard gave me this morning. Uh, it was someone had a heavy weight of doubt in their minds, and Chris very honestly shared a time when he wavered and he had a very strong faith, and then started reading um, philosophers who would argue the other way. I think you said you read the books in the wrong order. <laughs> um, and the verse that goes with that word, which Richard gave me this morning, is from Psalm 1828. 
Now, just looking up Psalm 18, 28. You, O Lord, keep my lamp burning. So something of when we have doubts, I don't say if, I say when we have doubts. It's the Lord who keeps the lamp burning. My God turns my darkness into light. Then I read on to verse 29. With your help, I can advance against the troop. With my God, I can scale a wall. I wonder if that's what happened when you had that midnight visit by the police. With your help, I can advance against the troop. My God, I can scale a wall. Let's just take some time just to think about some of the things that Chris has shared about those verses and about that interaction between Moses um, and Hobart. When Moses persuades him to come on the venture that he knew that God had for him, that he wanted to leave and do something else, but that I will share with you whatever good things the Lord gives us. So it may be that you are facing doubts. Seek the Lord's light to burn brightly into that darkness. It may be that you are following a call on your life. Listen to God's direction rather than necessarily your own desires because God's direction will be so much more creative. And it may be that you're facing some kind of attack or onslaught. With your help, I can advance against the truth. With my God, I can scale the wall. Commit your circumstances to God and ask for his strength and his defences and his weapons, whatever is required for this situation in place. Take a moment just to commit all of those things if it's for you or so it might be somebody that you know. Just ask God for guidance. We pray, come Holy Spirit, minister to your people. All in this place and on all those who are still listening at home.
Spirit of hope and of faith, and knowledge of truth. Spirit of defense and of protection. and a spirit of discernment and direction. Come, Holy Spirit. Call your people <clears throat> today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Chris. Save. 